Hi, I'm Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for conversation about something where they are true leaders. So we can all learn from it. Let's go. Thank you so much for uh, joining my little podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. This is a humbling experience because your podcast is one I'm listening to and you're awesome. I've been speaking with you before and it's interesting how you're so gelled. But that kind of leads me to my first question. So how do you get into game development? What's the whole story to the studio you're running? Yeah, it's a weird path because I think as people will notice, our last names are the same because we're brothers. We got started basically from not really thinking we were going to be able ever to make games so much as kind of landing in the game space. And uh, that came from basically doing game jams towards, in my case, towards the end of my college days and did a game jam, which was basically a 48 hour event where you build a video game over the course of a couple of days. And up until that point, I never thought that it was a thing that I could do sort of in a broad context of like having the technical knowledge, the artistic capability, whatever. And then just happened to have done it over the course of two days in sort of a self-surprising way. Uh, and I passed the tool I used, which was Game Maker, over to our other brother, Seth, who does the game programming. And he picked it up, started working on it. And then slowly but surely over the course of like a year or two, he and I landed at a company together, worked there for a short period of time, and then broke off to uh, all three of us basically started Butterscotch, sort of as like a side project thing. And the shenanigans, the name of the company is Butterscotch Shenanigans. So the shenanigans part was meant to sort of umbrella include anything that we might do. And Adam was getting a PhD in molecular biology at the time. He was off doing that cool thing. Seth and I started making games. And then we just kind of slowly ended up all managing to come together before the launch of Crashlands and all working together uh, once Adam got his PhD in molecular biology. So it was this weird kind of, I don't think any of us thought we were going to end up here, but we kind of happily have coalesced in <laughs> a useful way. I think Seth, uh, the third brother who's not here, I think he was the one whose dream, you know, was to go make video games for a living. Yes. I just didn't think it was possible, you know, so he was, he was finding himself kind of falling tangentially into, you know, trying to, trying to come into, come at games sideways, right? So he had started a joint law and business program uh, to be a lawyer with the idea of being come into the industry, but like from the legal admin side. And yeah, and it wasn't until just by chance, because right? I guess yeah, Sam, you it actually started that game jam started because you were working for some little startup uh, here where we are in St. Louis. And I was a marketing intern. He was a marketing intern, you know? Yeah. For a summer. And they were like, uh, we make game stuff, I guess. I don't think they really knew what they were doing. <laughs> no, they didn't. We need people to make some games or something. Is that a thing? You know? And so Sam was like, yeah, I'll go figure that out, I guess. And you know, spun up a game jam, Googled around for how to make games, you know, up comes game maker from yo-yo games. And then that's like the that's sort of set down the, the whole trajectory. Yes. Roundaboutly, I guess. This is the short answer for how we got into games. <laughs> yeah. When was the first time, you know, you felt the taste of success, big or small, you know, it doesn't have to be sales. It's just that you felt like, okay, hmm, this is working. We just succeeded with this thing that definitely makes us feel confident in the trajectory of making great games. There were two key moments. One was after our, I think it's maybe our second or third game jam together. Um, that Seth and I had done in St. Louis. We presented the game that we had made over the course of these two days to just ended up being a crowd about a hundred. 50 people. 
everyone was just laughing there, just like just out of their gourds with like how ridiculous of a thing we had managed to make in just that two day period. And that was Which game. Was that? Do you remember? That was Tal Fight. That was Tal Fight. The Tal Fight of the Gods, the original. And that was when we're like, I couldn't draw arms. And so the character's arms were replaced with bananas because they were like arm shaped. It was just all over the place. But we just keep on going in a way that sort of don't really worry too much about the places where you're super weak and you try to make the whole thing, make it whole, you know, as much as you can. And so that experience was awesome. We have we have a lot of core strategies we've developed over time, but one of them was, you know, developed in that first game jam or one of the, that early game jam where uh, anytime we have a deficiency of some sort, whether it's we don't know how to animate a thing, don't know how to draw the thing. We just find some way to use humor or explosions to cover it. <laughs> yep. It's like, so when you, when you start that game, we start towel fight. The first thing that happens is you're just told you've been teleported to this arena and you now have bananas for arms, right? And so we just explain away the thing that we couldn't do at the time. And if you look at our earlier games too, like you'll see there's just like the, there's explosions constantly on everything and they're very fast. Like, but behind that explosion though, is something we didn't want to do or didn't know how to do. <laughs> Usually using it to mask sort of some uh, interesting technical problem that we didn't have to bother with, like transitioning things or whatever else. You just put an explosion on top of it and you're good to go. It's done. Figured it out. I have um, a friend. He said that if you're doing anything creative, game, architecture, whatever, if you have entirely no limits, that might actually not be great for creativity. And he said that one of the best friends of creativity is boundaries. Because if you have to like relate to those boundaries, it, it forces you. And he said, sometimes those boundaries can simply be a budget, but it can also be other things. And when you think about production, how do you buy, build in, let's say, the, the, the right boundaries uh, to enhance creativity? Kind of, we had a, another podcast. We, we talked with Don Daglo about leading creatives. Oh, sorry. It was the one with Mark Kyle. And we talked a lot about that. So my question is this, as you have progressed and become better and better, do you feel like you've almost lost something on the way? Because it sounds like, you know, those boundaries you had there in the beginning, well, the boundaries were the limitations, but it made you do some really creative things and cool design choices. Do you feel like you lost something on the way as you become better and have a bigger team and, you know, those kind of we're things? We're constantly fighting against uh, short-term, get it done versus long-term, do it well versus stay within constraints versus try to make a long runway so we don't have to worry about constraints. And of course, the dream running any business, but especially one that's chaotic and hard to survive as the games industry. The whole goal is to just kick out a runway so that you just make whatever you want and you don't worry about it. It's a constant push and pull of should we accept this constraint and work around? Because, of course, working around a constraint is itself a cost. But then also, in, in our case, since we are the team, then we control what the constraints are to an extent. Not the money part, but the shape of the game, where we're going to deploy it, all that kind of stuff. And so we have so much room for how to choose our constraints that that's always a thing we have to worry about. But I would say that while it's a worry we frequently have of like, are we taking too long? Are we worried too much about hitting some bar? While we constantly have that worry, I think that we have it to kind of a healthy level where we use it as a reminder to step back and just think about what we're doing again. It's a reevaluation trigger, but I don't think practically speaking that this has felt like it's been a thing that has started to harm us. Recently, we've been focusing so much on the developer experience and the quality of the stuff that we're producing, like really focusing on the long-term experience. That was where those biggest questions came in of like, is this good? It feels like nothing is happening, but we're starting to see a bunch of that stuff pay off right now. Like it's in start and we're seeing what that means on the other side. And it's really fantastic. Yeah, I'll definitely say after the success of Crashlands, I think we flailed around quite a bit, I think in a weird way. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. because when we launched the game, we had maybe a month-ish of money left in the bank. It was very much a like 
like, oh, I guess that's that. I hope that goes uh, sort of a thing. Yeah, and, and by money left in the bank, it's important to also say that we were being supported by our spouses and by our savings that we had built up that we were just burning, right? We didn't have a publisher. We didn't have like a bunch of cash to pay for development. We just had some amount of personal runway, basically, that we were just closing in on the end of. Yeah, yeah. And so I think after that, when we hit this point where because of the success of that game, you know, we were able to think very long, like almost, we almost went from so short-term focused to being able to think in like a five-year term that I think it sort of like broke our minds for a short period of time. It's <laughs> like, couldn't, because you're you're still operating how you sort of survive or in that survival mode of like, well, we just need it this week. Like you need it tomorrow. Like just sort of get this stuff done. But then also pushing and trying to change your the way you feel about those constraints or catch up to the reality of them. But then, like you said, not lose something, whatever that is. If that's that, the ability to actually get something out the door because you are time limited. We're in a very good spot now. I do think there's a bit of a wandering period in the sharp contrast from not really having much success and being sort of always at like a dead sprint to success that, you know, punted out a really long runway for us. And I think we did kind of flail around there a good deal, <laughs> to say the least. Oh, yeah. It was a chaotic period. Do you feel like you're out of that now? Have you stabilized, so to say? Oh, yeah. I think since mid-2018 or so, and a bunch of that came down to, I think, finally getting a grip on what production looked like, basically what production was. We had a lot of very good or very sincere you know, dedication to good management and good production practices, but I think we mistaked oftentimes what fell into a management problem versus what fell into a production problem because the symptoms of them can swap between the two categories. I think it was just a learning period of, of maybe two years or so of kind of figuring out what was really going on. I think once we got a grip, got into DevOps, you know, our last game, Levelhead, the launch of that thing was so weird compared to Crashlands. Crashlands we launched and it were, the whole studio was on fire for like eight weeks afterwards. It was the best time and the worst time. Yeah, it was brutal. I mean, it was success finally, but oh, we barely survived. At what cost? It was a few months after that. And then we launched Levelhead 2020 in May and you know, we launched on a Thursday and we told everyone like, oh, you know, just prepare. Like the weekend might be crazy. And we had but a lot of players for those in that first weekend, but crashes. The game was launched on six platforms simultaneously. Everything was just like everybody just we had a normal weekend it was the weirdest thing compared to the trauma yeah because yeah, it starts rolling out it was like wednesday midnight or something like that's rolling out for 12 hours basically across all the platforms all the regions but yeah we had seven separate builds we're supporting 12 languages it's a game with an online component where we're cross-platform online component where we're not doing real-time multiplayer which is a whole other difficult thing right but we still had to you know sync player data across and play in the game people make levels and share them with each other to play right and the computer leaderboards and all that stuff and so all of that stuff had to work and then it just did the launches were fine, like it, it appeared everywhere. Server side stuff was running. We had a few little hiccups, but they weren't even emergencies. Given the scale, it was weird. Of the launch, it was nothing compared to like so chill. The relative scale of Crashlands, and then like how painful that was <laughs> shortly after it. So yeah, I'd, I'd say we've definitely stabilized, especially in the last couple of years here. Yeah, well, even compared to that, because that was already two years ago. The title of uh, our talk today is from indie to you know games business, and it sounds from your story, it's almost like this is almost like a story so far with three chapters. That first chapter of founding a company. You know, struggling, not much money left in the bank. And taking from what you were saying, it was maybe not even money in the bank account of the company it was really like maximizing credit cards, those kind of things. So it's really that kind of entrepreneur's journey. And then it seems like there's a second phase of about two years, if I understand you right, where you're kind of going from that first success. Uh, there are things that are a bit chaotic there. And then there's this third chapter you're in now where you kind of find your way, how we do we run an efficient business. So do you agree with my breakdown of those chapters? If we're making a movie about you guys, would this be the right way to structure it? 
Yeah, I think so. It has that really nice kind of three act structure built in conveniently, I think, at the time of this podcast. But I don't know exactly what act four is like, but I feel much more confident about whatever's going to happen there than I certainly did during act <laughs> two when we were flailing around. A you lot. know, that chapter four, that's the sequel. So that's the next movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it actually feels like we're at the start of the sequel right now. Like we finished those three acts, because then we, at the culmination of this, if we're getting into this almost randomly at the end of the industry. And we had, you know, we're very strategic about it, but strategy doesn't actually align with what happens. We just had a thing we were trying to do that was very clear. And then we know we adapted and we strategized and we learned and we tried stuff. And as we went, we saw the culmination of that, like you're saying, right? We said, finally it works or it seems to, and then it's a crisis and we don't know what to do, right? And then at the kind of end of all of that, at the aftermath of that, we start to kind of rebuild and then we launch Levelhead. And like Sam said, smooth sailing. It was beautiful. And, and that's not to say it wasn't a lot of work, you know, getting to that point. But we really focused on trying to make sure that the work-life balance was good, that we were able to make frequent builds, that we had lots of QA going on, like all that stuff. And building that was really hard. And learning how to do it was really hard. And the culmination of it was then this just silky smooth launch. And so now after that, we're now working on our next title. And that's now with all of this context of like seeing just how much it mattered to really focus on tooling and processes and our moment-to-moment experience doing the work going just all in on that now with, with her next title. And so I think it feels like it's the it's that start of that next thing of like crash. And then we get up to the point it's like, oh hey, here's the release. We celebrate. And now we're kind of like back at the not bottom like in a bad sense, but there's a roller coaster ride. Here now it's chill. It's quiet. <laughs> Everything's fine. We got time. We like what we're doing. We're making some cool stuff. But we have no idea what is coming. And so yeah, I think we're in the sequel now. So before we get too far into the sequel, I think many listening to this are indies and not all, but some, you know, that I met, there's sometimes a little bit of this thought that if we just make that success, all our problems are gone. But if we go back here to, let's say, chapter two and three, it seems like, well, you kind of get a whole you know new set of problems here in chapter two. And then chapter three was a little bit, okay, you had to figure those out. Can we do a bit of a, let's say, a compare and contrast between like chapter two and chapter three? The thing that, okay, you had this success, you're taking things to next level, but you had things to figure out. And what did that look like in that two-year chapter two compared to the result when you had to figure it out? Because I think it would be very valuable for everyone listening on what were the issues that you had then and how did you solve it? So again, our team is only still basically six, seven people. And then with uh, about the same size squad doing part-time and QA stuff. So it's a very small team. And one thing that's really common when you're in that kind of space and you do manage to hit a point of success, you have this inflection point, is that there's going to be a moment where, while it's the case that you've done everything right, having success is its own crisis. Unless you've already been in a successful position before that, you actually don't have the systems or the infrastructure in place to handle what being successful means. Really what it means is how do you simultaneously now do both the creative and the forward-looking work of any new projects, new content for your games, uh, any new tooling build-outs, whatever, while simultaneously supporting what it was that allowed you to do this next piece. And I think like negotiating that boundary between how you set up your studio, how you set up your workflows, whatever else, such that you can actually preserve the time of the, basically the creative or the product teams to create new stuff when the team is so small and you're handling all this inbound material from having a success was one of those really big ones. 
like I know we did. I know there were a bunch of studios uh, around at the time who we also talked to. One of the things people told us, they were like, be really careful about hiring and growing because if you do it wrong, it's really challenging to figure out even what's kind of happening. And I think we saw that we were just drowning in the kind of change in the nature of the work. We didn't seem like we could make a lot of forward progress on the, that new value add to either just the existing game or a new game. So we started bringing people on because it was like, oh, we just don't have the bandwidth. I think what we really had was production problems, you know, like unidentified production problems kind of across the board. That meant that as we added more people. Yeah, we had process problems that we interpreted as people problems. Yeah. Or that we thought we could solve by hiring people to like fill a slot. What ended up happening, as with any production system that isn't properly optimized for truly for like actually working at scale, then as you add more people, it's not the case that you even get sometimes marginal benefit out of that. You actually sometimes, in our case, we ended up doing all the managing work, trying to lead the studio as well as sort of manage the previous game and sort of slowed down. The whole thing just got bigger. It just cost more and it did less. Less is more, truly, when it comes to the scale of a team. And in particular, you have to actually know what it is that is going sideways or like where actually the bottlenecks are located to be able to effectively grow a team or something like that. You know, we, we have successfully hired additional people since our early kind of uh, attempt at growth and then having to contract. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to being able to actually see where it is that we need more power and then being able to effectively communicate and shape that role to fit as opposed to just kind of guessing or hoping. I think it's this thing. Uh, then trying to plug it in and then being like, oh no, kind of went sideways. So very challenging. Yeah. And the core lesson from that first round was that everything is a workflow problem. It's a workflow problem first. Every solution is also problems because it's like a feature. Like if you make a feature, you've also made bugs. It's the same idea. And so the more stuff you do, the more people you hire, the more products you make. It's just like when we, you know, we launched a game, all of a sudden now we should do customer support. Yeah, that's good. But also we have to though. And so we have to kind of figure that out. And when we hire people, well, now we have to manage people. But what does that even mean? Well, you know, it depends on what you're doing and the people. But even just things like the communication channel complexity of adding, you know, where there were three of us when we started, we hired three people right after Crashlands. And we took what was communication between three people, which is six possible groups communicating. If I did that math right, <laughs> it's a combinatorial thing. Sometimes you divide by two. I can't remember. It's fine. The point is it's combinatorial explosions or what you get. You just add one more thing and also the numbers go way up. And so you add six people and now it's that well, six times five times four times like the, the number of combinations of people who are trying to communicate with each other. And it just goes up so high. That's one of those things that's really hard to appreciate is like adding a person when you only have a few. There isn't a small incremental cost there. It's actually enormous. And so the gain has to also be really huge, but it can't be if it's in the context of bad systems like we had. Because we, and I think a lot of what we had confused without realizing it was what we were doing because of versus despite it. It's, it's the idea of constraints like we talked about earlier, because like a constraint can be a thing that you succeed because of, but it can also be a thing you succeed despite. It's actually not possible to know for sure you know, which one of those categories it's in. And I think that's a lot of what we were dealing with was we just didn't realize how much we just had bad systems because we could get away with it. With three people, we grew up together, each doing our own thing, but we all had a really good solid picture of what the studio's up to because we're running it. And we're fully aligned on goals the whole time. So we don't have to worry about making sure that that's being communicated effectively to other people. Just like everything is actually really easy in that context. So because of all of that, we were able to get where we were, despite having just non-existent, I think is the most accurate way to describe our processes. And even though like we thought we were doing things well, and then I think talking to <laughs> other indie teams at the time too, like we thought about it a lot more than people, a lot of other people did, but you still only know as much as you know. And so you have to have those experiences to find out. 
the core lesson we have as a team now, besides try to not do stuff whenever possible, because doing stuff always has a, high, has a high cost, is to try to create scalability, as in the literal ability to scale, which is a process problem, but without actually scaling. Because scalability comes from good processes. It comes from uh, the ability to adapt to having more people, more systems, more robots. And so you want that, because that means that everybody's moment-to-moment work is better and more effective and more fun. But then if you also scale, well, now you've just caught back up, and now everything's hard and not very fun again. And now you have more problems and now all those need more solutions and so on. We're trying to really stay just as small as we think we can get away with. That's really the big lesson from all of that. Let me ask you something on that. If you would go back to what we call chapter one here, you know, just when you got started and you would do this all again and you know everything you know today, would you have put, let's say, a little bit more process, you know, probably very lightweight, but still in place. And that would have achieved some of that scalability you're talking about at an even earlier stage. I think I would like to say yes. If, you, if I was given the same constraints as we had then, which you know, Seth and I launched two games in six months on mobile because we didn't, we were like, we need to have some revenue coming in. That was how much money we had initially in for, as far as savings. So if I had, you know, if I had six months basically of money and we were restarting this, yeah, I would have just enough processes in place to facilitate the making of stuff and uh, what happens when you launch the thing. The truth is that that early on, you're so consumed. I think this is, you know, we've talked about the difference between like being in, focusing on being an indie versus a games business part. I think kind of does come in down to this in a way, which is the difference between focusing so purely on the game experience versus basically having a, a broader eye toward not just the design of the game, but the design of your studio, the design and structure of the tools that your studio and team uses, uh, and then how that actually fits into this broader launch and development pattern. And I think once you get there, it feels to me like it's less focused just on the experience of the game that you're trying to craft and more so on the group who is doing the work and making that experience the focus where it's like how do we make it such that this whole thing just sings and everyone's having a really good time the whole time including after launch like that if it was just the three of us again sort of starting over i mean i don't think there's any way to escape that we would have a lot of processes in place by default now <laughs> we have you know we're very process production oriented at this point in time Oh, yeah. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't go back to those Dude, days very painful you know, for anything. If I, if I could help it, it was a lot harder. An important piece of all this, though, is the role that luck plays in all of it, because it's one of those things that's like, I also would like to say, yeah, like learning all the stuff that we've learned, I would like to be able to go back. And if we now had all that stuff and started over, man, just could crush it because like we did it even without that. We could crush it. I think the reality is, is that we stumbled in blindly into accidents here and there that paid off. And like, and as a studio, we almost ran out of money a few times, at least twice, maybe actually three times. Yeah. Cause also before level launch, we were running low too, right? But then each time there was like, there was some piece of the process that was basically random. Yes. We set ourselves up to make it so that that kind of a thing could happen, but we couldn't control that it did or what the outcome was. Because the fact is, without those things, without those randoms, we wouldn't be here now in running this company. And those are things that, with more knowledge, we could have prepared ourselves for even better. But it's just rolling the dice again. <laughs> and I wouldn't gamble on taking that knowledge that we have back to then re-roll the dice. Because so much of the success in the industry, but in particular, in the entrepreneurial and then games space, it just is random. Because the way also that games launch, it's a one-done deal. You spend years developing it, millions of dollars, especially as you scale up the scope of the game and how many people are involved huge amount of investment and then there's a launch day there's just a day when the game comes out you cross your fingers
fingers. Yeah, cross your fingers, right? What if <laughs> what if the next Skyrim launches on that day or Elden Ring launches on that day? So many things can happen that just take that one moment in time and just throw a wrench. But the bigger thing I think is that this industry changes fast. And so over the few years it takes to build your game, the possible business deals you can do are changing dynamically the whole time where you might be able to even sell your game successfully because each platform over the years that we've been doing this, which is 10 now, something like that, have changed dramatically. When we first started, you wouldn't go to Xbox for indie stuff. Actually, you would for like for the first year kind of for business or whatever. And then all of a sudden they were just like, no indies, basically. We're not going to support anybody. And then now they're back and you can be successful there. If you're in Game Pass, which conceptually didn't exist, subscription services weren't a thing. So like, this is all changing so fast. You start making a game and then two plus years later, you're like, well, I hope the market is what we designed this game for, <laughs> you know, two years ago when we started and that the business contacts we have are still the same people. So we can actually clear a spot and get this thing launched and stuff. We've worked very hard, but we're also very lucky. I just, I really don't, I honestly don't think we could go back and just start rolling dice again. But this is the fun part also, right? It's so much fun to be in an industry where the whole industry changes so much because it still feels like you're in the frontier of something. I was discussing the other week when I was in LA with someone who spent a lot of time in film and we kind of got into this conversation why there's so much money and talent going into games now. It's always been like that, but even more now. And one part is simply business that when we look at what are people consuming as entertainment, games are taking us to bigger piece of the pie. Creative people are attracted to places where you can express. And um, there are other creative industries where things are for sure more stale. And this industry is probably the best to be right now. By the way, I really liked what you said around, yes, you would like to have a bit more lightweight, but process in place those super early days. I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues, uh, which is in our expert team at Fevro, and we were discussing to create a template for basically an industry. Like if you would have like a template as lightweight process as possible, but not lighter, what would that look like? Because when I was running my previous company, Handsoft, I gave a speech once at the, at the developer conference, you know, specifically for Indies. I took a little bit of a video clip from that movie in the game. It's, it's very old now, but there's this scene you know, with this programmer and you know, he has his like things on post-it notes. Suddenly he lost the post-it note and that was like the problem. I mean, the guy is a great programmer, but suddenly, you know, he's like so stressed, total crunch. Now he has a mental breakdown because he lost the post-it note. That was my inspiration for that speech. I was like, well, look, here's like a super simple process you can use. So at least you get some kind of a system around how you develop your assets and your features. Even if you use three people, this is how we can just make your life a little bit easier. So we thought, okay, what's the 2022 version of this in favorable? So it's encouraging that you say that. I have a final question. When you start to really think more about this as, as a business, I, I guess we're in chapter three here now. There's a couple of other things like IP, you know, registration. Did you also have those kind of things coming into, or did you have that from the beginning or maybe you haven't thought about it? Can you just give a little bit of perspective on those kind of questions that are normally, you know, that's the legal department at the big studio, you know, but when you're small, when do you start thinking about those? What was your take on that? I think it sort of speaks to uh, one of our core advantages and reasons that we still exist today as a studio is the diversity of backgrounds by which we all came into the space and in our interests. So that when it came to the business stuff, so like we mentioned earlier, our brother Seth, his undergrad degree was in economics and finance or something. And he's a certified financial analyst because he studied a huge tome of books. It's basically a person who evaluates businesses and it's like, here's how much you should spend on it or whatever. So like he did that and he joined a law business program. And so he's always been really into that stuff. And then if, 
and I studied it a lot. And then I came to this from academic science, where one of the weird things you get exposed to, at least in, in the biological sciences, is the intellectual property aspect of, which I'm not going to get like really into because I could just go as, as Sam could attest. <laughs> that basically when it came to the IP things, I think we were lucky enough to, to recognize that you don't need to do it before you need to do it sort of a thing, where a lot of people will, uh, I've seen some, some studios or whatever else, you know, spending a lot of money, like all that protective stuff costs a lot. And they'll spend a lot of money on that before anything has happened, before they have anything that even is worth protecting. <laughs> yeah, well, it tends to be too early or too late. With questions we did, I think just a trademark thing. It was after launch considerably. I think there's a lot of concern around just how much of legal protection you need in place. I think largely you just need bare bones stuff until you have something worth defending more or less. And you want to you want to have enough of a setup that you don't have to like scramble and build everything from scratch at that point. But I'd say keep that very light because that can just the admin side of that alone costs a lot of money and can really weigh you down. Yeah, I think it's for, and for, for us, it was that combo of like being interested in knowing about it. So like, so in my case coming from biosciences, just intellectual property law was just front and center all the time. So so I just read about it a lot, studied it in that context. And then again, Seth is also really into this stuff, right? And so like at minimum, we were it was just something we were always aware of so that we would be constantly asking the question like, what is our exposure here, right? Do we need to be doing something? And to Sam's point, it's it was it's trying to find that combination of what's the lightest weight thing we can do and not put the you know, cart before the horse, but also keep ourselves relatively safe. The thing that people spend likely overemphasize is going to be intellectual property. Because at least in like, there's a lot of international stuff and it gets kind of murky, but when it comes to the concept of copyright and like the United States version is not too dissimilar from everywhere else, you get so much protection just by doing the work. You can get away for a lot of intellectual property stuff. You can kind of just get away with it. Obviously, this isn't legal advice, <laughs> but you can kind of get away with it. But the thing you cannot get away with is contract law. That's where absolutely, especially in the indie space or really anybody who's like, I'm not a business person, but then they are running a business. Contracts are what, what will kill you. And that, that's the place where we were lucky given our backgrounds that we knew that that was true. And I think, and we, and it's a recurring theme we saw in the earlier days when we spent more time, just like in the indie community, kind of like talking to other people, there are other people who were starting companies. And the recurring theme was people get together. Cool, let's make games for a living. They start doing it. There's no explicit, here's who's in charge of what. There's no legal structure. Yeah. It's basically a setup for absolute chaos downstream. Get that stuff buttoned up. And then when you're doing business to business things with platforms, publishers, whatever else. Don't skimp on do it. Do not mess around. Yeah, do not mess around. If I had to choose what to spend my legal budget on, I can only choose a thing. Contract, Absolutely. contract review and that sort of thing. Yeah, it'll be first on setting up your business. Before there's any chance you're going to see a dime from people giving you money for whatever you're doing. You need to already have explicit agreement amongst the founders or, the, or whoever about who owns what and what does that mean and what happens under all the various scenarios where somebody decides to leave or we want somebody to leave. And we like we're, you know, we're three brothers and we've had this the whole time. Not a very good one in the beginning. We did a much better, more legally tight one more recently. But even still, like we had to go ask some you know, unfun questions like what happens if one of us dies or just becomes really unhandleable. What happens if I'm like, I'm over this. I want to go live in the woods. Yeah. Or just wants to leave. Yeah. We need to know what's going to happen. And so much of contract law is exactly that. It's just making everything explicit so that we all could all agree. So that coming into making a business is the fundamental because most things fail, right? So most people don't have to worry about the fact that they didn't have a plan and things weren't explicit. Uh, although it would have helped had things been more explicit, just reduce the likelihood of failure. But then the moment success starts to happen, that's when the fact that you didn't have that starts to become a real problem. And like you hear that story, you know, just all the time. 
So if you make it that far, and as Sam said, you're making contracts with other businesses, other people. Again, that's where some of the contracts that we've seen come across our way. If we if we just sign them as is, uh, whew, oh man, I would would be sitting at a rough spot today. And we've we've had a few business deals that we just rejected outright because we couldn't come to an agreement where we could get the contract to feel good um, and be reasonable um, on our side. And we spend like just an enormous amount of our time reading contracts and redlining and setting it back and being like, just take this out, take this out. Uh, but we also have lawyers to do that force. The moment we're like, this is too legalese. We don't want to try to read this with normal person brains. Yeah. The core thing we don't skimp on is contract legal protection. I think that's good advice. I think this whole talk has almost been um, a class in how you build a studio. Maybe we should uh, use this as a script and also create that show competing with Mr. Quest. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, you know, in the game too. For and sure. we basically name it this from indie to games business. It's a happier story. You know, you were asking me, you know, before we started this, if it's okay with profanity and we didn't have much of that. If there's no natural source of that that we could put into the script, we definitely have to invent some of that to spice up the story, you know. But this has been really great. I so hope to um, get another talk with you. We're up today. Thank you so much for joining this and talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out Favor Academy at favor.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all free of charge. Check it out.